Hey folks, you're listening to How to Win a Campaign, where you will get an insider's perspective that teaches you not only how to win campaigns, but also how to build movements. I'm Martin Diego Garcia. And I'm Joe Fold. And you can find us at the Campaign Workshop on Instagram and on Threads. Welcome and thanks for listening to this episode, Season 4 of How to Win a Campaign. Absolutely. And if you haven't already done so, you should definitely go back and check out some of the other episodes we've done on movement building. There's some really great information, but super excited about our topic today, Joe. I'm excited because today's episode is talking about community organizing and movement building through a really unique lens. Today, we're talking about how focusing on community organizing can help a movement reach its goals by doing real community outreach. Absolutely. So, Joe, let's take a step back here and and really connect the dots for our listeners. First of all, can you define for us community organizing and then talk a little bit about why is that participation in community so important and how can it really help be a catalyst for making change, not only in your local community, but nationally, globally? So when I think about community organizing, what I'm thinking about is that local grassroots outreach where you're engaging people in an issue. This could be at a community meeting. This could be at a church. This could be at a synagogue around an issue that maybe they haven't even thought of before or they feel tangentially involved in but don't necessarily have a direct stake in yet or think they have a direct stake in. This could be asking people to go and raise money for something. This could be asking people to go and take their time by doing something. This could be, as our guest talks about, getting people to have folks be a guest in their home. There could be lots of goals around this. It could be getting people to do something legislatively, all sorts of ways, but it's starting at that very basic community building block through meetings, through individual engagement to get something started. I know we've done an episode on grassroots movement building and really thinking through how do you have those one-on-one individual conversations. I think in the community space, whether it's regionally or there's some sort of identity, there's some common denominator that is bringing these communities together where you're moving groups of folks versus having those one-on-one conversations. And so also Making that distinction, I also think, is important. I think they're similar. I think it is knowing that your community is doing something together, but that you as an individual are taking a step to be a part of that. But it is, in essence, grassroots organizing, but now you're doing it through a group together to say, hey, we as a group of individuals are going to take this step together. It really requires connection and some coalition building potentially with other groups of folks that have a similar goal or thing that they want to accomplish in the community and really connecting the dots for folks. I think it also depends on having really committed and passionate efforts by the individuals in these groups who share these common goals and values. This community building, your goal is really mobilization first, getting these folks to take action together. You have to raise public awareness and create some concrete strategies and then really rally behind some resilient leadership. And I think this really helps build passion and really engages a broader coalition of folks 
to push for whatever the changes that you're looking for. Many movements started in community, whether you're thinking about movements of a community of people and that are tied together, like I mentioned, by either an identity or maybe a geographic region. They're really coming together to fight for change. I mean, thinking back to Standing Rock, I mean, there was tribes and local communities that really started that movement against the Dakota Access Pipeline, both in North and South Dakota. And it was really regionally based that then flourished into this national conversation. Also, looking at the civil rights movement or the Black Lives Matter movement, like these started in incidences in community that then led to rich, much larger movements. I think you can then think of examples in the LGBTQ space, in the women's rights space, where smaller incidences that got communities to mobilize and organize then expanded in the larger state or national and sometimes even global movements and fights. So community building can really be a catalyst for a much larger movement. Yeah, agreed. It's this idea of really getting groups of people together to ask the question, why? Why should we take action now? Why is this issue important? Why together is this important as a group for us to get involved? Again, often you're starting this at community meetings at, again, as I said before, in some religious institutions to take some steps to make a change in a community or could be at a community organization. But you want to get folks involved who might not have thought that this is an issue that matters to them. Again, we've seen this around pipelines coming through a community. We've seen this on a, like Aisha too is going to talk about today around the idea of action around criminal justice reform. It could be many different things, but getting that involved and thinking about how we're building power, one meeting, one engagement at a time, and creating credibility and urgency for an issue. We really want, if we're trying to do community organizing, to make sure we're amplifying the voices of individual community members that become this chorus of the community as a whole. So, Martine, can you talk about, because I think there's a critical piece here, how can storytelling amplify community organizing? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, at the campaign workshop, we love some storytelling. And it's really about figuring out how do you amplify those voices and really make that connection that not only empowers the community, but raises the awareness to a broader swath of folks who, like Joe said, may not understand the stake that they actually have in this particular issue. Our goal as organizers, as movement leaders, is really to bring these issues to light and then connect the dots for our folks. Because at the core of it, this community organizing is really about bringing public awareness to an issue so that you're getting some wider education that is often really unheard from likely the perspectives of the folks who are impacted by this particular issue. And so for you, your goal is, how do I center the folks who are most impacted? How do I make sure that they have the support, the resources, the coaching, the self-care resources that they need in order to feel comfortable telling their stories to highlight the issue? But then how are you connecting the dot to why should it be also important to the broader community? Why is protesting against this pipeline matter to folks who the pipeline's not going to hit? Why is fighting against police brutality important to folks who don't engage with the police very often? Why are a lot of these issues that may not impact them directly still important to you all as a community? And it's really our job as organizers and messengers to connect those dots for our audiences. Because ultimately, this is how we create influence and put pressure on institutions and really hold those powers 
that be accountable because the larger and the more diverse the coalition we can build, the less they're going to be able to ignore us. And it's also going to mean helping to build much more sustainable and passionate engagement that's really going to help you make a difference. Martin, I mean, we are lucky today because we're joined by one of the leaders in the fight for equity and reform in the criminal justice system who really talks about community organizing in a unique way and how to get people involved to do that. So Aisha Tu Youssef is the vice president of innovation programs at Impact Justice, where she's worked on the Homecoming Project and other incredible justice-oriented initiatives for years. And we're really excited for our conversation with her. I really love her project because it shows how you can take community organizing and engage people who may not have thought of being engaged before. My conversation with Aisha too is really insightful and I learned a ton from her. So I'm excited for our listeners to learn more. And we'll be right back after the conversation. Aisha Tu Youssef is the Vice President of Innovation Programs at Impact Justice. One of Aisha Tu's projects, the Homecoming Project, has been running for the last four years and helps formerly incarcerated folks ease back into society. In addition, Aisha Tu has worked on innovations such as Food in Prison and the California Justice Leaders Project. She has spent most of her career focusing on improving the lives of marginalized youth, young people, and their families. Aisha Tu, welcome to the program. Super excited to be here. Okay, so you've had a robust career around justice issues. Can you talk about your path and what led you to impact justice in the Homecoming Project? Sure. I will. I can't decide if robust means long or that I'm old. I can't really decide either way. Well, first um, of all, you're not old as compared to me. So let's say that. <laughs> but yeah. But please. Either way, it's a compliment. I'll take it. Yeah. So, you know, I think I came into the justice space how many in my circle have, which is I'm a child of immigrants. I'm also an individual who has loved ones that have been impacted by the justice system, particularly for my family. It was because someone I loved had an addiction. And I watched as a young person, that person I love cycle in and out of the system because of an addiction instead of that addiction being treated in a different way. Clearly, again, because of that robust career, that was in like the 90s and the 80s. But a lot has changed, um, but a lot hasn't because what we see in the system, the justice system particularly, is that individuals that um, based upon their circumstances, whether that's their race, their geography, cycle through the system, often on survival crimes and other things. And so what I really wanted to understand as an individual in college and grad school in my early career was why this was happening. What was the setup of our justice system that was particularly targeting or allowing these circumstances to happen to particular groups of people? And so that kind of led to my entry point into the justice system. Um, and I've been here majority of my career, um, specifically to Impact Justice. A very simple answer is um, Alex Wiesanski, who's the founder of Impact Justice. I actually worked for another justice organization as an evaluator, um, of which that means I literally looked at how programs, both reentry and diversion programs, impacted young people and their families. Um, so I worked with Alex there. And when Alex left there to come start Impact Justice, and I went to another organization to focus more on research. Um, Alex gave me a call and asked me to actually build out a project that didn't have a name at the time, but is now called the California Justice Leader. So I came back to Impact Justice to build that out. And I've been here ever since. 
Wow. Well, that's very cool. So you were working on California justice leaders, and now you also work on this project called the Homecoming Project. Can you talk a little bit about both projects? And then we can dig into the Homecoming Project a little bit more. Yeah, sure. So when I came to Impact Justice was to come and again, build out the California justice leaders. What's, what intrigued me about that project in Impact Justice at the time was that Impact Justice really had a visionary approach to what change could be in the justice system. And so the, why I came to build out the California justice leaders was because it hadn't been done before. I was being asked to do a project with an, with AmeriCorps that had never thought about or had never actually intentionally targeted formerly incarcerated people. And so Impact Justice, and uh, by way of that eye, was coming to build out something that was new and that hadn't happened before and that was visionary, which is what attracted me to it. And so now I built that project out and it is running beautifully. And I can talk all about that if you like. It's been around for four years. Um, I'm no longer the director of that project. And in fact, because of the work that I did, I am now working to develop and expand a myriad of projects that impact justice. One, which is still still sits in my umbrella, is a California Justice Leaders project, but is also the Homecoming Project, which is our housing project um, within the innovation side of impact justice. Tell me a little bit about what the California Justice Leaders Project does, and then I'd love to also hear about how the Homecoming Project started and where that is today. Sure, I will do both of those things. And we can probably get into this later, which is thinking about how the structure of impact justice works, particularly the innovation side, which is what we're really trying to do is build out projects that can touch the justice system and the people impacted by the justice system in different ways, whether that's reentry, whether that's issues that's happened while they're incarcerated, whether that's on the front end. And so the projects that we build out are going to be touching one of those systems. And so the California Justice Leaders Project was really built out of this idea of could we use a federal system like AmeriCorps? which has been around at this point for about 35 years that primarily has been targeted to young people graduating college and they would leave and go do a year of service and use that year as their you know essay to get into their next step of education. How could we use a system like that to target a different population? And so we built out the California justice leaders in California, started off in four counties, is now in 10 counties in California, in which we hire formerly incarcerated young adults. When we hire them into the AmeriCorps project, which is the California Justice Leaders Group, they operate as navigators and mentors to young people people that are either currently incarcerated or recently released. A few things that we know, which is both from the impacted population talk about, but also data shows us is that individuals need somebody that can identify with them to really think about and help them re-enter society and have a person that they could actually lean on in that re-entry. Um, so we built the California Justice Leaders to be that. It's what we call a credible messenger model. And not to throw out terms here, but the credible messenger model is really simple is who is the most credible person to deliver a message? naturally, it's a person that's experienced it. And so we hire formerly incarcerated people to work with currently incarcerated young people on their re-entry. We've been around for four years. We've expanded to 10 counties. We started off um, hiring about 40 individuals. We're now up to almost 70 individuals and have built out a really strong alumni network um, in which those alumni are now going back into the community and also expanding to other jobs and careers with the training that they got from the California Justice Leaders. So we're super excited about that project. Yeah, that that's amazing. So then tell me then how the homecoming project came about and what that is. Yeah. And so kind of thinking about the model of impact justice, right? The homecoming project sits on that back end, which is again on the re-entry side. What both people in the community have told us, what impacted populations have told us, and what data shows us is that 
People that are entering back into our society after a period of incarceration need somewhere to live, need somewhere to go. And I think broader than just the justice population, what I think is so clear is that many of our metropolitan cities, many all, mind you, are having a housing crisis right now. Uh, right now, with the increase of, uh, of rent and mortgages and all that's happening, we are at a crisis moment in our society. And people leaving prison are particularly fit at that nexus of where do they go when they come home? And the Homecoming Project was built out of this idea. A couple of things are true. I don't want to tell you or the audience things that you already know, but typically when people are leaving prison, I could talk in California, but this is typical for most places. When people leave prison, they are given a certain amount of dollars, a pretty small amount, and oftentimes they're on parole. And that typically means that they are going into a transitional housing, typically called like a halfway house to use kind of colloquial terms. And oftentimes what some people that are in incarcerated will say, is that halfway house is sometimes more restrictive than the prison was. Um, there are a lot of rules and regulations and boundaries inside of that halfway house that oftentimes prohibit them from seeing their families, from having jobs, from engaging in community and figuring out their next steps. So what we really wanted to build is the idea of how can we build another model of housing that can meet the needs of people leaving prison that don't require those kind of boundaries or don't need those kind of boundaries to reenter our society. At the same time, what we also know is that in our societies, there's tons of empty rooms that are not being utilized. And so what we wanted to do was really think about how we could build a housing project that's using those empty rooms to actually hit the need of housing for the impacted population. So simply put, the homecoming project takes individuals that have been incarcerated particularly longer than 10 years. And we chose that population specifically because they're the most likely to be homeless in our societies. So they've been incarcerated for at least 10 years and we placed them at community host homes. So Joe, if you had a room inside of your house, we would contract with you. We would place an individual leaving prison right inside of your home. The couple of things that you would know for us is that that person was vetted, right? We know exactly what they're incarcerated for. We know where they're going. We know what they've done while they're incarcerated. And same for you. We would tell the incarcerated person where Joe lives, what Joe does, all of those things. So everyone's highly aware of who you are as an individual. We match you up and we place that individual inside of your host home. And what that allows is that individual to have a safe place to sleep and a safe place to land, but also allows them to embed into the community right at the onset of their re-entry. Yeah, no, I mean, it's amazing and it's an amazing project. Talk to me a bit more about the importance of community in a project like this and how you engage the community in a project like this. Yeah, so the Homecoming Project only exists because our involvement and our engagement and our conversations with the community. Again, the entire impetus of this is that we place individuals into community host homes. That's random people that have a room inside of their house that want to participate in this project. And originally, when we first started this project, the individuals that originally opened up their homes were oftentimes from black and brown communities, were oftentimes from communities in which they themselves or had a family member or a loved one that had been incarcerated. And so they knew more about the experience. 
And so the way we actually got these host homes is we went and talked to the community. We went and spoke at churches, talked to clergy, went to community groups, went to community meetings, not just to talk about them being involved with the homecoming project, but talk to them about what it means for the community to come together and support people reentering our communities. Because a couple of fundamental truths exist, which is they're coming back to our community. And the onus is on us is to figure out how we both accept them in a way that they can flourish here. And once we understand and community members understand, which typically they do, that it's the onus is on all of us, the folks that are at the park, walking down the street in the grocery store to welcome them back and to engage in where that they can stay back. Oftentimes, community members want to be engaged. And so for the homecoming project, literally, our homes are community members. They open them up and we pay them to house individuals. The other thing that they're doing is helping to change the narrative of what it means to house and also be in community with a formerly incarcerated person. Sometimes what we are seeing is people are nervous. Who is this person? What is the crime they committed? And they're thinking about the narrative that has been told about formerly incarcerated people. And involving the community in this work allows us to shift some of that narrative because they get to say, you know what? I opened up my house to an individual that was incarcerated for 25 years. And that individual is now my friend. That individual is now part of my family. That individual, I may not talk to as much, but I know they're flourishing. And so we only exist because of our involvement and our engagement with the the world around us, which is our community. That is amazing. One of the things that we've talked about on this season of the podcast is movement building and frankly, how movements really start from community and community members. Tell us where the spark for like the homecoming project came. Were there other models that you used to build it? How did it get started? And then frankly, where is it going? Yeah. Great questions, Joe. So the homecoming project started off as an idea, just like everything else does at Impact Justice. What we wanted to know first is somebody is somebody else doing it? If yes, how do we support them? And if they are, then we're not going to do it. Um, clearly, that was not the case. The other thing we wanted to know is how can we build a project that doesn't require the kind of boundaries and regulation that building another housing project does? Like We're not developers. Right. We wanted to figure out how we could make a project with the re- with all the resources already existing. Right. We already have folks leaving prison. We have community homes. So how could we make a project around housing using the materials that already existed? And it just so happened at the time that this idea began, we had a staff member that had just actually come home recently from being incarcerated. And that staff member actually had to stay at a halfway house. And so they felt extremely passionate about the building of this project because it was their lived experience. And so we relied on both what research and data and our evaluations had told us, but we also relied on the experience of the impacted population to help build this out. And so we actually built it from that idea. It took a lot of community building, right? We had to go talk to both partners and community and legislators to figure out how we could build this project. And, you know, the truth is, is we're not the first organization or the first project to think about a shared economy model, right? We see this a lot in foster care in which we see the sharing home model in foster care, particularly with young people. We also see this on the other side with older adults um, in different communities in which people open up their homes for older adults. And both of those models have been really successful in a lot of ways, but also both of those models are working in a population that oftentimes people approach differently, right? People often approach young people that have been victims or survivors in a system and they want to lend a helping hand to a young person. Oftentimes people reach and see older adults um, and 
find that they need assistance and they want to lend a helping hand because they often need assistance by no fault of their own. It's a completely different narrative for us to have a conversation and say, these people were incarcerated. These people have been away from a society for a really long time. We think as a community, we should rally around them to support them. And so we use those two models as information, but had to also craft out how we were going to change the narrative just a bit so that people could also see formerly incarcerated people as their neighbors, as their friends, as their community. And so that's kind of where the spark came from it. And when we started out, our goal really was to get the first five, right? Because you can imagine we told people like, hey, can you open up your home and I'll pay you to house a person that's been incarcerated for 35 years? We got people with their eyebrows raising. People looked at us left and said, what did you say? And so part of our work at the beginning, we were like, let's just get the first five. Let's get five people to do this. If we can get five people to do this, we know that the word can spread. And it worked. Our first five happened so quickly. And actually, some of those first five hosts that were with us four and a half years ago are still with us today. And they spread the word both about the project, but also they told their neighbors to open up their homes. And then they told their neighbors. And so, so many of our hosts today are actually through word of mouth and literally through the movement building of this project because people talked about it. So we started with our first five. And actually last week, um, Bernadette Butler, who's the new director of that project, um, just sent out an amazing email that we reached our 100th participant last week. And now we're at 103, actually. Um, And so that means we placed in Alameda County and Contra Costa County over 100 individuals and community host homes in our communities. And that is a huge feat. amazing. When I really started working heavily on the project, I think we had placed 24 people. And so talk about like robust, even in just the last four and a half years, what we've been able to build and how we've been able to build a program that not only do we have people literally in my email box every other day asking how they can have homecoming in their communities, but we have people asking us, how can we support their build out of a homecoming project? And they want to know, how did we make this work? So talk to me a little bit about how you made it work, like specifically when you're doing a project like this, and you talked a little bit about it, but I want to get a little deeper, that there are always is going to be roadblocks. Everyone's not going to say yes immediately. And so how do you get through that? What is the way in which you get that community buy-in to make a program like this so successful? Yeah. I think what we're doing in many ways is the Homecoming Project is bridging a social divide that exists, right? We are taking individuals that have been incarcerated. And I want to be clear, many of the individuals most that have been incarcerated are people that are coming that came from lower resource communities. And when they're exiting, oftentimes without the assistance, without a housing, with all these other pieces that they need, often go back to lower resource communities because of that. And so putting them in a host home in many places from lower resource communities that have that, that have been built up to more affluent communities and kind of everything in the mix, what we're often doing is building a bridging a social divide of where folks often were reared and where they want to go. And the project without actually a big lift is doing that. And we see that kind of operate. We see that operationalize in a really magnificent way. And so how we've actually been able to, I think, penetrate people's narratives, I think what we're doing, the truth is, is we're fighting against every movie, TV show, article, word of mouth that has talked about who the incarcerated population are. Yep. Right. And 
because we know that we have that barrier in front of us, it's imperative for us to not just show from our actions, but to also bring people that are part of this population that are our friends, that are our colleagues, and show what is actually possible with support. And so that's what we do. We take the stories of the first five that we had, and we wrote those stories down, of course, with their permission. We wrote those stories down. We recorded those stories, and we use that as a way to garner support to say, hey, not only are these individuals our loved ones, but these individuals are also individuals that are deserving of second and third and fourth chances, just like all of us are. We ask individuals in our community to take a look at our own lives, take a look at our own family members' lives, and think about all the times that we've had to apologize, that we've gotten a second chance, that someone's given us another chance, whether we deserved it or not. And oftentimes, when we kind of change the narrative and put it back on ourselves. No one walks away from that conversation saying, yep, there's many people gave me grace. Many people gave me a second chance and I want to participate in that. So the truth is everyone doesn't open their, up their home immediately, right? Sometimes we say, okay, you don't have to open up your home today. Come to some of, we have what we call host meetings. So every quarter we invite um, all of our current hosts, potential hosts, and maybe hosts to come engage in a training that we that we have. And that training can be anything from things around the real estate market to things around social justice to around how to understand the incarcerated population, all kinds of things. So we say, why don't you just come to a couple of our host meetings and engage with our current hosts? So they do that a lot of times. And they'll come and they'll ask them questions. Why did you do this? How did you do this? What have been your experiences? And oftentimes, it's not even the homecoming staff that, that are the bridge to having someone open up their home. It's another homecoming host or participant that is that bridge. So most of the time, and mostly what has really helped us bridge that divide or helped us actually get beyond that barrier of someone being nervous is saying, come talk to someone that's not us. Come talk to a participant, come talk to a host and then make a decision. But there's also other ways for people to be involved, right? So say all their rooms are full for the moment. They have a bunch of college students back in their room. They don't have any empty rooms. So, you know, what they'll say is, well, why don't you come? It's like, okay. So we've had individuals donate to the homecoming project. We've had individuals say, well, I have a bunch of backpacks that I have that I work in community, can you use those? Absolutely. So we also have other avenues for people to give back in this project if it's not quite opening up their home just yet. How many people did you have to approach and ask to get to one host? Is it a dozen people? Is it two dozen to get a host? How hard is that? I am a person of numbers. I'm an evaluator by trade, but I don't have a good metric for you, Joe. And it's that's okay. only because... We're out in the community all the time, right? We went to, we were at, you know, prior to our first home, we were at 10 different church meetings that had five people or 25 people. What we did is we also went and spoke to like the unofficial community leaders, right? Those unofficial mayors, those unofficial people. And we went and spoke to people that were doing a lot for the community already. So one of our first host homes that we had actually came before we placed our first participant, before we even like had talked about when they would be placed. And that was because this individual was like, you know, I had to do a lot around the reentry population. I volunteer here, here, and here. I've housed my own family members. So I'm happy to house this individual. So some of our first people that were our hosts were actually individuals that in their own personal lives have already engaged in the justice population. So that's one piece of it. But to give you a bit more interesting metrics, so you asked me earlier, where are we going? 
we launched in Los Angeles County in March. And when I say launched, I mean, we went and had our first big meeting to let everyone know in Los Angeles County that we're bringing the homecoming project to LA County, particularly out of the need. In California, the majority of people that are paroled out of prison paroled to Los Angeles County. And Los Angeles, just like many of our cities, are dealing with an enormous housing crisis. And so we know the homecoming project can be successful then. At this meeting of this first launch meeting that we had, we had about 20 individuals that work somewhere in the housing or justice space talking about their work and the project and what we're going to do. I left that one meeting with two individuals emailing me after and saying, I'll be your first host home. Mm-hmm. So it's not a good metric for you, but I think when we are able to one say this works, but also we're able to say, hey, we are going to support this process every step of the way. We give every single participant a community navigator, which is a case manager to support their reentry. We are going to ensure you are paid timely for your opening up your home. We are walking this walk with you. We're more likely to get individuals to open up their home. You did give me some very core metrics here that this is a community organizing process, that it takes time you have to have those meetings with the community that you have to set up, follow up engagement. And it starts with one or two people and then it builds as you're able to use those stories to break down those barriers. That's what I heard, which is super powerful. If you want to take those as metrics, they're not quite numbers, but they are definitely processes. <laughs> and what I'll say is they're steps, right? I'll and, say yes, exactly. And in the work that we've done and the conversations we've had with other folks, using those stories as barrier breakers is super powerful, but then also going to community and showing that there are simple steps that they can take, even if it's not putting someone in the room in their house yet, but giving a backpack or donating. Those are ways to build engagement over time. And it's just so amazing and powerful. We've seen it work so many times with people that just want to take baby steps in. It doesn't take long for individuals to say, if I have an empty room, I'll participate. And what's happened actually, Joe, is as this project started off, as most of our hosts being in brown and black communities, in religious communities that believe in second and third chances and communities that they themselves or their family members have experienced incarceration, it is now expanded to individuals that have no direct connection to the justice system, that do not have a family member that has been incarcerated are touched by the system in a robust way that are now opening up their homes for our participants. So it is expanded because of those narratives and because of the shifting of people's perspectives that we've been able to do that. Well, that's that's amazing. So tell me a little bit more about your work at Impact Justice and what else you're working on. And yeah, love to hear a little more. Yeah. So I don't even think I talked that much about like who Impact Justice is, I think. Go for it. Well, <laughs> this is that part of the podcast where you get to do that. So tell okay. us a little bit more about Impact Justice and, and what you do there. Yeah, I'll keep it, I'll keep it brief. So, you know, Impact Justice, we prioritize as an organization, like visionary thinking and unconventional approaches to justice system change and reform. And so the projects that we undertake at Impact Justice kind of have to fit that makeup of an or of projects that are really going to change the narrative and change the way people think about justice reform and their involvement in it. So really think about the organization and 
in three distinct ways, which is if we're really going to have a conversation around mass incarceration and ending mass incarceration, we really have to have a conversation of how do we prevent people from entering our systems entirely. And so we do a lot of work in both building up the work around that, thinking about how do we support and also build out programs that are participating in diversion, but also thinking about how do we ensure people are receiving the services on the front end and supporting organizations to ensure they don't even enter our justice system. The second piece we think about is really what happens when people are incarcerated. We are not an organization that believes that once people are incarcerated, like that's the end, right? We believe that when people are incarcerated, that's a moment in time. And we believe that it's imperative upon us and the community and our legislators and our other um, systems and elected officials to ensure that they're receiving the services that they need, the nutrition that they need, and that they are free from harm while they're incarcerated. Because 98% of people that are incarcerated do get out and they are all around us. And so it's important that the experience that they have with they're incarcerated, that can lead them to having a more robust and safe re-entry. And then a lot of the work that we do on the on the third piece is around re-entry. How do we ensure that the individuals that are entering our society receive the services that they need? And that's programs like the Homecoming Project around housing and the California Justice Leaders, which is really around system navigation. And so the kind of the continuum of impact justice, the projects that we build out are going to hit one of those three buckets in some ways. Oftentimes they hit more than one of those buckets. One of the things we're often and always talking about is how do we want and break down silos? And then how do we bring unlikely players to the table? Because of the way we try to approach our work really from a visionary, unconventional perspective, what we're often trying to do is think about what is the issue we're trying to solve for and who needs to be at that table. What we know is true is that the justice system and justice reform has been around for a long time. And some of our approaches that we have and just talking to folks like me that are justice people are not going to get us to the end outcome that we want. So how do we bring other people into this conversation that could help move some of these outcomes. So on any given day, Joe, I could be talking to individuals regarding some of the food and prison work that we do. So sometimes I'm talking to chefs. Sometimes I'm talking to food bloggers. Sometimes I'm talking to nutritionalists. Sometimes I'm talking to people inside of correctional facilities because I want to have a conversation about what people are eating and how do we ensure that they're eating food that's healthy for them. And that kind of fits in everything that we do. I find myself as a justice professional and many of my colleagues talking to individuals we never dreamed of talking to folks who are gardeners and growing food to ensure that we're actually meeting the outcomes that we have. So overall, I just said a whole lot of words there, but I think overall, uh, what Impact Justice is really trying to do is to think differently, to think from a visionary perspective of how do we impact justice reform in a way that touches the impacted community's lives in a way that they've asked us to do, in a way that they said they needed, and a way that data supports. And a lot of that kind of shows up by these visionary approaches and thinking about bringing unlikely players to the table to solve our issues of the justice system. That's okay, amazing. Okay, that answered the question. Yeah, okay. no, it totally did. The only part of the question that you didn't answer is, what are the things that you're working on? You've talked oh, a bit. Yeah. yeah, talk a bit about that. Yeah, I mentioned a couple in there. So I was actually this morning on a really interesting phone call with some of our, we have a food in prison team. And that food in prison team was launched because we were the first organization to really kind of take a really in-depth look at the state of food service and the food people that are incarcerated are are eating. So about two and a half years ago, we released um, the Eating Behind Bars report. And that report's really looking at what the food experience is like for people that are incarcerated. I think so many times people will say, 
colloquial jokes about, well, you don't want to eat food like the people in prison do, right? But they've never asked themselves, like, well, why have we said it's okay for them to eat that food? So our project is really built out of one, that report, and then two, what the projects are that we're building out of that. If nothing else, Impact Justice is a group of doers. And so we take data, we take information, and we say, what are we going to do about it? We knew the food that people are eating and the way in which they're eating it was inhumane. So we're like, what are we going to do? So we built out a chefs in prison project, and we put culinary experts inside of a prison inside of Maine, except actually instead of all the prisons in Maine. And they are actually revamping all of the meals and teaching the people that are incarcerated that work in the kitchens how to make more healthy and nutritious meals and to ensure that they're eating the meals to reduce food waste and ensure they're getting the nutrition that they need. We have other projects that we're working on in our food space. We're working on a project right now that we're actually going to be using containerized farms to actually grow healthy green vegetables in a prison in California and a women's facility, but also using our building um, to grow healthy green leafy vegetables and teaching the formerly incarcerated population in our building and the incarcerated population in a women's prison how to grow that food and then use that entire project as a way to create workforce development. They will learn a new skill and where I'll be partnering with folks that are doing containerized farming here in our communities to actually take those individuals and their skill and, and hire them and have them in the field of containerized vertical farming. We're thinking about, right, how do we push California's correction agencies to bring in fruits and vegetables from our local farmers here in California. So that's a big thing of what we're doing. And that's kind of really centered in that second bucket I talked about earlier, which is how do we ensure the conditions that are happening inside of prisons are better for people that are incarcerated while they're incarcerated. Other project we're working on, you know, the ideation phase of things, which we're thinking about Again, how do we grow better food? How do we create mentorship and navigation projects for people upon their exit, like the California Justice Leaders Project? But also, how do we think about um, using navigation and mentoring while they're incarcerated to set them up before they even exit the prison systems? We're building out projects to think about that. We're thinking about projects inside around um, how do we think about health, particularly for women that are in prison, particularly our aging populations. How do we ensure that they're receiving both the medical care that they need, but that we're setting up projects and pathways for them to actually receive the medical care so that we enter back into our societies. They already know what to do and they're healthier than when they entered. So we're always thinking about really cool things. Um, I know I could give you like 10 other projects, but you don't want me to do that. No, but that's perfect. And I mean, all of this (laughs) talks in lots of different ways about community building and engagement and movement building in some way. And it's super powerful to see and hear the work that you're doing. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah. So do you have a favorite book or podcast that comes to mind if folks are interested in like learning more about the criminal justice space or movement building that has been an inspiration for you? Yeah. Well, one of the books I actually just read recently was Stacey Abrams' book, which was Leave from the Outside. And that's not necessarily just centered on the justice space. It did help me to think more clearly and more broadly about how do we impact change on a broader level. So that's a really great book that I have recently read. That's amazing. I don't need more than one. That's perfect. Okay, great, great. (laughs) And if folks wanted to learn more about impact justice and the work of impact justice or get a hold of you, how can folks do that? 
Sure. Please always go to our website, which is impactjustice.org. You can both contact the organization, but you can also find all of our projects on there. You can even find me on there if you would like. It links directly to my email. But please feel free to email me. My email is ayusuf at impactjustice.org. I I answer my own emails. I respond quickly as possible. And I love engaging with both the community and folks that want to learn more, but also folks that want to figure out how they can actually participate in some of our programming. Well... Thanks so much for an amazing conversation and for all the amazing work you do. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. All right. Take care. Bye. And we're back. That was such an inspiring and incredible conversation to hear his perspective and see the critical role that she has played in these justice-focused initiative projects was really inspiring. Joe, what did you think of the conversation? What are some of the pieces that came to light for you? Well, a couple things. First of all, community organizing is really about taking that model and engaging people. And she was able to really get folks to think how they could have a stake in changing the criminal justice system and making a real change in it, which is amazing. And this idea of having individuals who can reach out and identify their connection with that impacted population, be a part of the change that they want to make is incredibly powerful. And she really highlights thinking innovatively and creatively for solutions and really thinking about how do you use resources that might not have been put to pressure around an issue that could matter to a population can be so powerful and then get people to think about this organically in their own way. She mentions key aspects of community engagement. She talks about speaking with people in their meeting spaces with unofficial community leaders to really change hearts and minds. And I think we both have been in part of organizing spaces where someone doesn't have to be an elected official to be a community leader. It's really thinking about who is a leader in a community and getting them involved and finding that and doing that organizing on the ground, one person at a time, someone who has a network, someone who can bring people together. That can make such a difference, finding the right people, the right spokespeople, the right storytellers. All of that can be incredibly powerful in building a movement. I mean, Martine, what are your thoughts there? Understanding who your best messengers are for the communities and audiences you're talking to is always going to be critical. Who do they see as valid and credible and who would they trust? Sometimes it's their elected officials. Sometimes it's absolutely not their elected officials. Sometimes it's the news and sometimes it's absolutely not the news. And until you do that digging, that information digging, you're not going to sort of figure out who those messengers are. And it sounds like the Impact Justice Project has really honed in on really understanding who are those folks in the community particularly when you're thinking about an issue that many people, I would imagine, have some set narrative in their brain about who these folks are. These people were convicted of a crime, served their time, and are now re-engaging in community. And the way that people see criminals, right, or people who have served time, I would imagine is not in the most friendly of light. So to really utilize those lived experiences and share those stories in a way to build empathy and community involvement, I mean, it's just amazingly inspiring on such what could be a very, very tough and challenging conversation to really change those hearts and minds. You're working against old built-in narratives about who these people are 
and then flipping them on their heads to really create that human connection. If they can do it with this program, imagine the things we can do with a number of different other programs following a really similar model and bringing those unlikely folks to the table who can really offer an unexpected and unique perspective on these really complicated issues because we think, okay, this person's been convicted. They've gone to jail. Obviously, they're a bad person. Well, that's obviously not the case. These issues are so much more complex than that. These humans are so much more complex than that. What they can offer communities having served their time is something that has a little bit more nuance and needs this like human, empathetic, emotional capacity to connect again. I'm thinking about the homelessness issues that we're facing across the country and these housing issues we're facing across the country where people see homelessness or folks who are experiencing homelessness as it being their fault and as it being something that they can't do anything about. But imagine flipping that on its head and using these trusted, credible messengers and telling these stories in a different way. What we could do in cities like where I'm in San Francisco or in, in cities across the country where more and more folks are experiencing homelessness for various reasons and the issue is so complex. So, I mean, just a really, really inspiring work that they are doing and model that they're utilizing to create that change. I want to thank Aishatu Youssef and the folks at Impact Justice for coming on the show and showing us what they're doing and showing us a great example of community organizing. And as you've said, Martine, there are lots of ways that folks can take that and are taking that and running with yep. it, which is amazing. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. If you have any questions or comments about community engagement, check out our website at thecampaignworkshop.com. Other information can be found in the show notes. And be sure to like and review and subscribe on Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts and stay tuned for our episode next week. Until next time, this is Martin and Diego Garcia. And Joe Fold breaking down how to win a campaign. How to win a campaign is Joe Fold, Martin Diego Garcia, Elizabeth Rowe, Phoebe Retta, Samantha Sondek, and Lauren Odom. Music by Daniel Pinto. Audio editing by Christopher Lang. Special thanks to the team at the Campaign Workshop. Please review, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.